welcome to Nonprofit Tech Podcast presented by FusionSpan. FusionSpan helping associations thoughtfully engage their customers through technology. With me today are two talented women who recently released a white paper titled Steal Like a Fundraiser. Elizabeth Weaver Engel, who comes from the association world, is CEO and Chief Strategist at Spark Consulting. And Sohini Balaga, who lives in the nonprofit realm, is the Director of Communications at the nonpartisan budget watchdog group, Taxpayers for Common Sense. Thank you both for joining me today. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Elizabeth, let me start with you. Uh, how did you two connect for this white paper originally? Uh, yeah, thanks, Justin. People listening to the podcast might be familiar with the Spark Consulting Collaborative White Paper series, but you know, I've been I've been doing these pretty much since I launched the business about uh, five and a half years ago, and so I generally keep a running list of topics that seem interesting to me um, and then kind of wait for the right co-author to show up or, you know, the, the topic to seem like it's the right time to address it. So this particular topic has been circling around my brain for, for quite a while. Back about 10 years ago, I had worked for a while for uh, a web consulting firm here in the D.C. area that mostly operated in the charitable fundraising space. And they had hired me because they thought they might want to launch more of an association-focused practice which in the end they decided not to do. Um, and, you know, and that's all fine. And, and, you know, we parted ways amicably and all that sort of thing. But at the time that I was working there, you know, I was really being educated about the fundraising space and they were really being educated about the association space. And I remember one of the things that kind of blew their minds was that the association space is so open about sharing ideas. And when you think about that, it makes total sense, right? Because the Emergency Nurses Association and the American Institute of CPAs are not competing with each other in any way, shape, or form. They, you know, there's absolutely zero competitive overlap. And so if the emergency nurses find something that works really well for membership or continuing ed or any of the kinds of things that they might do, why wouldn't they share it with AICPA, right? This works well in our world. It might work well in yours. You know, have at it. Good luck. And things are a little bit less open on on the fundraising side because people tend to see, fundraisers tend to see there's a certain pie of money that is going to be donated in a given year from people who donate. And if I have found something that works really well and I share it with you, you might start doing it. And that means your slice of the pie will grow, which means my slice of the pie might shrink. So they, they are a little bit more guarded on that side of the, the nonprofit house. But there are some things that fundraisers do really, really well that really blew my mind. And I thought, you know, why doesn't the association industry, the association side of the nonprofit house, do a little better with this? That stayed in the back of my mind. Sohini and I have known each other for many, many years, and she was making a job transition. And I said, you know, hey, look, would you be interested in working on this with me? You know, it's kind of my fundraising expert to bring, bring that level of expertise to writing this white paper. We talked about this, I guess, oh, last summer, and she said yes. Uh, so yeah, we got together and, uh, and wrote this and published it back right before the end of the year. 
This is very exciting. Uh, let's dive into the paper. Uh, so, the the paper mentions charities outperform associations in attracting millennials. I definitely, being in the association realm, you hear people worried about millennials a lot. Is this just because millennials are very giving people, but they don't need to connect with others, or are charities doing things better? Well, there's two answers to that. First of all, you can't not worry about millennials just because they're such a large cohort. You know, if you don't try to reach out to them, you're leaving a lot of eyeballs, you're leaving a lot of engagement, you're leaving just a lot on the table. Secondly, charities and nonprofits are never the only one doing what they do in this space, which means you have to be competitive. You are always, always cultivating that relationship. You are always reaching out to people and you're always reaching people where they are, which is something that feeds into um, how everybody's trying to reach millennials. Everybody wants them. Everybody wants them at the table, but they are one of the most marketed to generations ever. They're not just digital natives. They're people who can see messaging coming from a mile away. They can smell it when you're trying to sell them something that is not worth their time. They can tell right off the bat what it is that you are going to ask them to do. And so I think nonprofits always have to pedal harder to get their dollar. They always have to work that much harder in order to get people to say, okay, you're the one I'm going to give my money to, or you're the one I'm going to spend my time with, or you're the one that I don't have money for right now, but I will spend my time now so you can get my money later because I think you're important. And I think that nonprofits as a result just have a little bit of an edge there. You're always reaching out. You're always cultivating people. You're reaching people where they are and you never ever take their engagement for granted. When it comes to millennials especially, this is not a group of people that will be marketed to in the usual ways. It's especially as an organization gets larger and larger, um, the mechanism, the the well-oiled machine that goes into play every fall during traditional giving season and through the year, through the rest of the you know giving cycle, it's hard to make tweaks to that. You have to, or rather, you have to be intentional in how you make tweaks to that. And so, if you have been doing dear friend letters for the last twenty years that's no longer going to work. You have to reach people, you know, through Instagram, through Snapchat, and you have to figure out how you're going to do it. At every nonprofit, there's somebody who's always going, I wonder how this works. I wonder how we can make this work for us. And that I think is one of the ways in which charities tend to outperform associations. Associations don't have to do that. If you are in an association and you need the credentials that they're going to provide for you to proceed or to grow in your industry and nobody else can provide that, you have a little bit of an edge there. And so you don't have to adapt, you should. And that's, I think, how that works out. Yeah, that's very interesting. Elizabeth, the paper also talks about reward, associations tend to reward novelty over loyalty. So new members get a discount or first time conference attendees get a discount it references that as being a bad thing that associations should be thinking about loyalty the way, you know, nonprofits kind of will have this, they'll try and grow their donor base and, and move people through a moves management cycle. But at the same time, when I think of millennials, generally they're going to be the newer people. They're going to be, they haven't been to the conferences before. 
and a lot of millennials are used to getting to try things for free, just the, the way technology works today. Isn't rewarding novelty kind of attracting millennials or is, would you disagree? I think that the answer is you actually have to do both, which, yes, we're all used to hearing that as, um, as association professionals, right? You know, which thing should I do? You have to do both. This actually kind of gets to something that I think uh, Sohini's going to address a little bit later, but the idea of different people need to be treated different ways. Yes, you absolutely should still be doing stuff to get people to try you for the first time because, you know, a lot of times people do need some kind of an incentive uh, for, uh, you know, being willing to, to take that first plunge, whether it's, you know, attending an event or trying out a membership or just reading your, new, your online newsletter or, you know, coming to your website for the first time or whatever. People need incentives sometimes to try things for the first time. Obviously, one thing that I think we'll talk about a little bit more later is the issue that millennials, young professionals are young, in fact, which tends to mean that they have fewer resources, whether that's money or time or, or whatever. You know, they're, they're earlier in their careers. Um, they have fewer resources. So you might need to um, provide some enticements. But what tends to happen is that we only reward novelty. So it's only the first-time attendee who gets the special deal. It's only the first-year member who gets the discount. It's only the first-time book buyer, um, you know, who gets, who gets a big discount on that purchase. We need to also be thinking about, um, and again, this relates to the treat people uh, equitably, not necessarily equally. We need to be thinking about the value of those long-term relationships as well, whether those would be, you know, your boomers who are, at this point are very senior in their careers and their professions, likely looking to start retiring, if not already retiring, you know, your Gen Xers who are more your mid-career people who, you know, are more experience, have hopefully been with you for a while, right? Those, those are people with long-term loyalty to your association. You want to make sure you're rewarding that as well. Now, people with long-term loyalty, much like long-term donors, are probably looking for slightly different things. So, you know, somebody who comes to your conference every year versus somebody who you're trying to entice to come to your conference for the first time, you might want to offer both of them incentives, but you don't necessarily want to offer them the same thing. So that first-time attendee might need a discount, particularly if, if that person is an early career professional and maybe their employer isn't going to pay. Maybe they need uh, access to a scholarship fund or a travel scholarship fund. Once they get on site, you might want to have a special reception for them where they get an opportunity to not only meet other first-time attendees, that's one mistake we tend to make, but also maybe you have your board members and committee chairs or, you know, your entire volunteer leadership come and be at that reception as well. Maybe that, that attendee that has been coming reliably for five or 10 or 15 years, maybe they want something more like priority seating, priority access to the conference hotel. You know, maybe you want to have a special reception for them or some kind of badge identifier that identifies them as being a veteran of your conference, right? You want to recognize both kinds of relationships and reward both kinds of relationships. You might just need to do it a little differently for each type. I, yeah, I love that phrase, treat uh, equitable, not necessarily equal. So, Henny, can you talk a little bit more about that? Like, from a, a nonprofit standpoint, where do you see that sort of trend excelling 
and that maybe associations could uh, mimic or steal from since the we are talking about stealing in this paper? Sure. Um, I've actually worked at a range of nonprofits. Taxpayers is the most recent and the largest, but every single nonprofit, again, meets people where they are and makes people feel special in a way that makes sense for them. So for instance, one of the case studies in our white paper is that of Woolly Mammoth. And I remember their development director saying, first of all, she knows every single one of her donors. You make it your business to know that. Now, that, that may not be possible in an association where you have thousands and thousands of members, but the larger the nonprofit, the more you invest in getting to know who your people are, what is important to them, what they need, what they want, and then personalizing it because one size does not fit all. Ultimately, fundraising and development comes down to relationships, and relationships are all about people, and people are not the same. It's really what that comes down to. And so my favorite example from Woolly especially is they had the, you have benefits for members. Don't offer free parking to the person who metros in. It doesn't make any sense to them. Or in another nonprofit where I worked, they wanted to do a Mother's Day event but they wanted to do it at three o'clock in the afternoon and there was no parking, which makes absolutely no sense for somebody who has an infant and has to handle all the things that go with an infant, like a gigantic car seat or, you know, the stroller or whatever the case might be. Figure out what it is that your donors want and then respect the level of their investment. The person who gives you once and gives you $25 is as important as the person who gives you all year long and the person who gives you something at you know the $250 or the $2,500 level. But each one of those people has a different level of commitment and that should be equitably and appropriately rewarded or at least acknowledged. Otherwise, where is the incentive for someone to scale up or to give you more the next time around? So yeah, I definitely see with individuals the understanding them and delivering the kinds of services or opportunities that would be specific to them. Uh, Elizabeth, I know with associations, though, there are a lot of trade associations out there where the the member is technically the organization. How do you how would you apply this thinking? Which a lot of the paper focuses on. Okay, how do we meet that individual? How do we grow the individual? How do how would you expect an association, a trade association to tailor your suggestions differently? Or, or is, would your argument just be that we're all people at the end of the day? The answer to those questions is yes to both of them. In the end, when you're, when you're dealing with a trade association, whether your member is a company or a hospital or a school district or, or whatever, that entity is still made up of people, but you are dealing more with the entity. However, Different kinds of entities still need different kinds of things. You've got uh, a company that is a member that is a large company versus a small company, that is a company with multiple locations versus more of a mom and pop, that is a company that has been a member for the long term versus a company that is brand new, right? Even though those are companies as opposed to to individual people that you're dealing with, they're going to have different kinds of needs. They're going to have different kinds of relationships with your association. You know, so they're going to have very different kinds of needs with regards to running their company than a company that's been in business for 100 years and has multiple locations. 
they're going to have different understandings of some of the advocacy issues that are maybe operational in your industry. They are going to potentially have different levels of interest in being involved with advocating for your industry. They are going to potentially need different kinds of things from your association, different kinds of support. You know, so it is, it is still the case, even when you're dealing with conglomerations of individuals, which is what, you know, companies or hospitals or school districts or whatever are, they are still going to have different kinds of needs. And as an association executive, it's your responsibility to build a relationship with that entity and find out what their specific needs are, what the challenges are that they're facing, the goals that they're trying to achieve, how they want to construct this relationship with your organization, how they want to construct their relationship with other members of your organization and help facilitate all of that. As somebody who is in the nonprofit world and has been a member of two separate associations, and I let both of those uh, memberships lapse and it was interesting for a variety of reasons. It was interesting. One of them like Elizabeth said, has been reaching out to people who've been writers or who've just been in a particular space for a long, 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 long time. They did everything in person. You had to go to them. The other organization, the other association offered everything from webinars to entire series of education, entire education series. It was done remotely. It was done on your own time. You could call in at a particular time or you could just catch up with it later. And I just remember thinking, oh, great, because it gave me the flexibility to grow in my profession as a communicator. And I really appreciated that. And that really, really stuck out to me. To me, that was a great example of an association sort of meeting people where they were because Elizabeth has said this now twice, should we do this or should we do the other? The answer is you do both. In nonprofits, you do all the things. That makes, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I think another, you talk about membership. One thing that came out in the white paper is the idea of a a campaign and how nonprofits and associations approach those very differently. A lot of associations, when they have like a membership campaign or membership renewal campaign, It tends to be sort of very generic, very automated, very transactional, uh, whereas the the paper described nonprofits' approach to campaigns being much more personalized, it seemed. So, Annie, you work in communications with nonprofits. Uh, What's sort of the biggest difference you see in the way associations and nonprofits approach campaigns? Is it the resource, you know, because I feel like a lot of associations don't dedicate the staff resources to get really creative with their campaigns, but maybe there's, there's something else that associations are missing. What, you know, what is, what is your impression? Well, there's a couple, I have a couple of observations to that. First of all, it's the rare nonprofit where everybody is not involved in camp in, in a campaign. Um, it's not just, it's not just the development department that's handling a campaign or its execution. Before a campaign gets off the ground, you have all hands meetings where you have senior leadership, you have communications department, you have you know, the person answering the phone so that they know what to say when somebody calls. I cannot tell you the number of times I have called, especially if there was an advocacy um, campaign and as a member, I got the call your member of Congress, call to save funding for so-and-so. And I had a question, I think is what it was of, you know, can I go to one or the other? And there was a mistake on the phone number. So I called and the person answering the phone had no idea what I was talking about. That would never happen at a nonprofit. A well-run nonprofit, it's all hands on deck. 
because by the time somebody decides that they're going to take that step and make a donation, become a member, join your campaign, take an action, everything has to be one-click easy. It takes a great deal of work on all ends to get to one-click easy. So that's something that I would encourage all associations to consider and certainly all nonprofits to consider. The other thing is, like you said, it can be a little transactional. You pay your dues, you go to the annual conference, and then what? I don't know. In the nonprofit world, campaigns are, there's a great deal more storytelling. You're doing a lot more than writing a check as a member or as a donor or as a contributor or as a concerned activist in a particular sphere. You are becoming part of something that's bigger than you. And this is something I have said in a previous conversation. Somebody said, oh, fundraisers, they just have to get your money. And I thought, nope, that is not what fundraisers do. Fundraisers give you an opportunity to be part of something. They give you an opportunity to put your money where your mouth is. They give you an opportunity to, in some cases, especially with large donors, leave a legacy. That's a whole lot more than a transaction. It's frankly not a transaction at all. It is a long-standing relationship and a campaign is just one small piece, one small dot on the continuum of what should be a lifelong relationship of development, of relationships, of fundraising, of growing and supporting a commonly held vision. And to that end, you know, I've dropped in and out of associations and if I drop out, I never hear back from them. That would never happen in the nonprofit world you're always debriefing, as it were, after a campaign ends. How did we do? Did we get the same numbers? Did we get the same level of engagement? Did the same number of people come in? If it's a small enough group of large donors, did all of them come back this year? Who dropped out? Is there a reason why they're dropping out? Are they giving it to somebody else who's doing a better job than we are, whether it's serving the homeless or whether it's supporting the arts or whether it's you know, something else? What is it that we are not doing well enough to sustain the same level of commitment, whether it's time, volunteering, in-kind donations, or a flat-out big check once a year? It's almost annoying in some ways, but there's a reason why nonprofits are always reaching out to say, hey, here we are. Because if you're not working to be on people's radars, why are they going to suddenly come to your aid when you do find yourself in a position of, oh no, there's an emergency and we cannot reach out to it um, or we cannot meet the need? You are always at a nonprofit cultivating that relationship so that when the time comes, the answer is yes. It's a long courtship. It's a little bit like by the time you ask somebody to marry you, you should know that they're going to say yes, but it takes a while to, re- to develop that. It's not something that should ever come out of the blue. So I want to pick up on a couple of things that, that Sohini just pointed out. If, if any of your listeners have ever gone to the ASAE annual meeting, they will be aware of the fact that for many years, ASAE has had a corporate social responsibility partner in each of the cities for the meeting. And I will, I will not reveal the name of the organization, but one of the corporate social responsibility partners from an, an annual meeting many years ago, still sends me a donor solicitation about once a year. I don't live in that state. I mean, they can see from my address, right? I don't live in that state. I gave to them once um, when I was there as part of the, you know, the ASA annual meeting. I did do the service day, so I showed up to volunteer, but it's been years. The second thing that I wanted to pick up on is this whole idea of the storytelling and the debriefing. So when I was, I was working for 
this uh, web consulting firm that that mostly focuses on the, the charitable fundraising space. I had been in associations for ten years at that point, and so I had definitely run and seen plenty of recruitment campaigns and plenty of renewal campaigns. And one of the clients that I was working with, one of the accounts that I was on, was a major international uh, fundraising organization. And I was helping prepare for their year-end fundraising campaign. We started work on that in the spring. I just, I remember being so impressed at the level of detail that went into planning this campaign. It, it, it was a wonderful storytelling campaign and we, we figured out, you know, everything from an overarching storytelling theme for the entire campaign to how each of the individual solicitations along the way were going to contribute to that larger story. You know, one of the things that, that charitable organizations do really well is they position the potential donor as the hero of that story. Your donation, your contribution, your volunteering is going to be the thing that makes a difference in solving this problem that, me- that matters to you. And, you know, the, the imagery was beautiful and everything was tied together in these really lovely coordinated ways so that you could not only tell that, you know, it was all coming from this particular organization, but all the pieces tied together because obviously you were probably going to see multiple solicitations along the way, right? The print matched the, uh, the email matched the social matched the online. Everything was all, you know, the, the stories meshed, the images meshed. There was this continuing theme. It was just all incredibly beautifully coordinated. Um, and then not only did we debrief at the end of the campaign, we debriefed after every single solicitation that went out, um, tracing it down to, okay, so we had links here, here, and here in the email. Which ones did people click on? Okay, they liked, they, you know, this, this kind of messaging worked or the link that was in the image worked, right? So we're going to do more of that in the next solicitation. So as we were going along the way, we were constantly adjusting, 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 adjusting based on what we learned worked in the previous touch point. Um, you know, on the, on the back end of it, when people actually clicked through and said, yes, I'm ready to donate, I, you know, I know every single person on this call has seen the difference between I click to donate versus I click to uh, attend the meeting or, you know, join or renew or whatever. Click to donate. Those forms are simple. Do not, one of the things I, main things I learned is do not let anything get in the way of the person giving you their money once they've decided to do that, right? You get how much are you giving, you get what's your credit card number, you get the minimum amount of information from that person you need to process the credit card number. After that, you mess around with, is this in memoriam? Does your employer match gifts? Would you like to tell a friend? Blah, blah, blah. That's all later, right? You know, right now, what else are you interested, right? Right now, you concentrate on Make sure you make it easy for them to give you their money. Um, Associations do not do this. Um, And some of this is because we are constrained by the processes that are built into the association management software packages that we use. So a message for AMS vendors is make the online transactions easier. I guarantee that there is a way, no matter how simple you think the online transaction is, I guarantee there is a way to make it simpler. Um, and, and that's yet another lesson that we can learn from the way fundraisers run campaigns. Yeah. And I think that, you know, the, idea that they're looking at their information that they're getting from those campaigns is so critical. Um, And the white paper talks, Elizabeth, about how 
associations, while they, they have all this information about what their members, you know, what events they've attended over years and what education, what books they've purchased, or if they're getting any continuing education or anything of that nature, associations seem to have such a wealth of information because of who they are around their customers. And yet they, they seem to leverage it much less than most charities or nonprofits do. Uh, what do you think the biggest missed opportunity is around data for most associations? Most of your members, so most associations have an extensive list of benefits. Um, you know, you've got all these kinds of different things that, that you offer. Um, and most of your members are coming to you not for the eight or 10 or 15 different things that you offer. They're coming to you for two or maybe three things. And if you pay attention to their behavior, you can figure out what those two or three things are. That, to me, is our biggest missed opportunity, is we don't pay attention to members' behavior. We like to, we like to survey people, and we like to ask people questions, and that's all good and important, and you should keep doing that. But there, there are two, at least two potential flaws with surveys. One is you only get answers to the questions you actually think to ask, and two is what people say and what they do are not always the same thing. And I, th I think that we would benefit from paying closer attention to what people actually do. Now, you know, as I just detailed in this, uh, the story about working with this, you know, large international organization on their year-end campaign, they're paying attention to what people do in an extremely detailed way. That would be great if associations could do that, you know, if you could pay attention to, okay, you know, we sent various different solicitations for this particular campaign, what happened with each one. That's sort of the 201 level. Let's, let's stop at the 101 level for a minute and say, just pay attention to your members' behaviors. What programs are they attending or not attending? What, um, what, uh, you know, uh, email solicitations, you know, are they, they what, are, what kinds of things are they clicking on and not clicking on? Once they've logged into your website, which again, you know, a bunch of your information is going to be publicly available as it should be, um, you know, but once they're actually logged in as members, where are they going? If you have, you know, an online white label social community, what are the topics that, that they're engaging around? If you start paying attention to that kind of stuff, which all those things that I just named are probably automatically already being tracked either in your AMS or one of the other software packages you're using, you can start to get a picture not only of, oh, this person is, you know, um, working at this organization and here's her title and she's a woman and maybe you know, um, you know, something about degrees or certifications, you can actually start to learn what she's interested in. Um, and that enables you to segment and target your communications with your members in a much better way. The theme of a lot of what's going on in this white paper is about relationship. Um, it's about getting to know your members on more of a personal basis and understanding what matters to them, what's important to them, what their goals are, what their challenges are, so that you can better target everything about their membership experience to them to helping them achieve those goals, solve those problems, the things that they're interested in. The place to start with that is pay attention to what they do. That makes a lot of sense. So what? What? So then, what's the what? What should they do tomorrow? What associations? You know, a listener hears this. 
what's something that they sh you think they should do tomorrow or, or in the next week? The first thing I would say is download the white paper, um, of course, right? Um, but no, seriously, you, you, I, I highly recommend you do that. Um, it's free. We don't collect information from you. You're not going to end up on a mailing list that you have to unsubscribe or ignore for the rest of your life, right? We, you know, just get, get the white paper and, and give it a look. Um, and then the, the three main things that we identify in the white paper, the three main ideas you should be looking to steal from fundraisers um, is or are the, you know, this idea of treating members equitably rather than equally, you know, meeting them where they are, understanding what's important to them, understanding how they want to interact with you and how they want to be recognized and then doing that. You know, step two, uh, idea two is do a better job with your campaigns. And step three is think about how you are connecting with young professionals and realize the barriers that you may be setting in front of them that are preventing them from connecting with your association. The biggest one a lot of times is the money membership barrier, right? You can only be a part of our community if you pay us for membership. Um, there's a terrific story in there about uh, the Capital Area Food Bank um, here, in, here in D.C. and what they do to start a relationship that's not on monetary terms. Um, so these are three pretty big ideas. What I would recommend is don't try and change everything overnight. Pick one thing. So start with, okay, of these three ideas, we're going we're gonna to remove barriers for young professionals' participation, or we're going to try and do a better job with our campaigns, or we're going to get a better understanding of new members versus long-term members versus less involved members versus highly involved members and try to start targeting our uh, relationships with them uh, and, and personalizing our relationships with them a little bit better, right? Pick one of those big three ideas and then even beyond that, pick one thing that you're going to change, right? So to take an example, let's say, you said, okay, we're going to do a better job with campaigns and we've got a renewal campaign going on right now or we're about to start it. So, you know, the one thing that we're going to do differently is instead of just blasting people with notices, we're going to actually do something that goes with the notice that talks about why they might want to renew, that hopefully is something that we can look at their behavior and say, okay, you know, we've got a segment of people who come to our, this is an easy one, right? Got a segment of people who come to our annual meeting. And so we're going to create a, a renewal group of people who are annual meeting attendees. And in our renewal communications to them, we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about, you know, members get a discount and, you know, maybe we have some special programming for members at our conference. And hey, you know, uh, next year, this is what we're looking at. We're going to be in this location. We've got this great keynote speaker lined up or, or whatever. But we're going to actually construct not just here's notice one, here's notice two, here's notice three, here's notice four, uh-oh, you lapsed. We're, we're going to actually construct a story around here are the great things that we offer for annual meeting attendees and here's why you want to renew for next year so you make sure you don't miss out. Pick one thing that you can start with, test making some changes, see what happens, hopefully be able to report some success, um, and then move on to the next thing. That sounds perfect. Well, thank you both for being here. Um, is I will definitely include a link to the white paper in the description of the podcast. That would be great. Um, is there anything, Sohini, do you, is there anything else you would like to share? Any final thoughts you would like have or anything you'd like, any, anywhere we can find you online that you share your opinions that people might want to check you out? 
I don't have anything to add because I think Elizabeth did such a great job pulling all the pieces together. Um, I think the association world is this amazing place where it can be so supportive and so much more can be done. Um, I'm very grateful to the, the few that I have been a part of and I, you make lifelong friendships and that's a wonderful thing. Um, and I am on Twitter at Sohanibalika. Perfect. Uh, Elizabeth, you, and where can we find you? Oh, God, everywhere. I have a blog at my website, which is uh, Get Me Spark, the name of my business, GetMeSpark.com. Um, so I write about all kinds of things there. You can also, at my website, find a link to this white paper and all the previous white papers uh, that I've written. And I also am on Twitter, at E.W. Engel. Uh, so definitely follow me there. You will get a dose of association wisdom, lots of sharing of other people's association wisdom, um, and also a solid dose of DC State tweeting <laughs> so um, you know you'll have to prepare yourselves for that as well that is yes yeah elizabeth is a, definitely a great follow on twitter um and i, I don't know that i introduced myself i'm justin berniski director of enterprise solutions at fusion span you can find me at jay berniski and i i tend to have a lot of photos of my kids but that is what it is <laughs> all right well thank you both for your time today and uh i hope everyone gets a chance to read the white paper thanks justin thank you